0: sweet time tonight. I rejoice in these services, the opportunity for the body to get together and just reflect on the marvelous grace of God. And Tonight I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew addresses the credentials of the coming Son of God. I was thinking about credentials and the necessity of them. We're kind of accustomed to them. You go to a sporting event or a concert. You have to show your past to be able to get in. Security is there checking your credentials to allow you either onto the field or into the stands. You need credentials for any kind of access. But imagine the kind of credentials you would need to be a king or queen. This year... With the death of Queen Elizabeth, the royal family turned over and everyone's credentials changed as they moved up the ranks. Prince Charles of Wales became King Charles. His son, Prince William, became the Prince of Wales. And on the succession went. And in every situation, they each moved to their new role. And in doing that, they established a particular order who had a right to the royal throne, each having their own credentials, each having a particular birthright, each having their personal responsibilities. It was essential for the king to be able to establish the order of the royal family. It was certainly essential for Queen Elizabeth to establish her successor and so on. It's essential to have this kind of credential so that you can determine who is the real king or queen versus the imposter. And for a crown to keep its position, it needs to be able to transition smoothly. So clearly, it was important for the royal family to be able to establish who was going to take over next. But I think even more significant than the royal family would be that, of course, of God's divine kingdom, who's going to sit on God's throne. All of history, we should note, is heading towards a theocracy, a theocracy that is going to be manifested on earth in a monarchy, where there will be one king who will sit on his throne and he will rule from that throne for all of eternity. Every nation will come to him as the king of kings and lord of lords, He will have no succession plan. He will be the final king. He will have his family there. All who will be there will be children of God, heirs of that kingdom. But this king, the eternal king, this Messiah, will rule for all of eternity. And he has been anticipated from from the fall. From the time in which Adam and Eve ate of the fruit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from that time, the anticipation of one to come has been made known from the Scriptures. God has anticipated the coming of this great and magnificent King. There is a particular line He must come from. There's a particular birthright There's a particular demonstration that must be revealed or manifested to prove that this one is of God's chosen race. This is the one who God has chosen to be on the throne. He must come through the line of David. He must be traced back through Abraham. He must go all the way back to Adam himself. He must be a man who comes through the line of Abraham, who goes through the line of David, who is able to sit on the throne. And that is what Matthew unfolds for us here in the marvelous genealogy. Now, I'm not going to read every name. I've done that before. You can get my sermon from Matthew chapter 1 many years ago. But I will point out some details in this genealogy So that you see the marvelous hand of God as he unfolds and proves that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The one who has the right to sit on the throne of David. It's interesting thinking about this particular detail in regards to genealogy as we come to Matthew's gospel here. Matthew is recording the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrating all the way back to Abraham that Jesus Christ comes in this royal line and is a fulfillment of this royal pedigree. And in the midst of this, Matthew demonstrates all Jesus' rights to the throne But what's significant historically is that after this event, after the life and death of Jesus Christ, it was AD 70 that the Romans came in, conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and with it, the very records that would have been kept by the Jews in order to confirm the genealogy. Jesus Christ is the last one who we could demonstrate actually had the right To this very throne. If anyone came today claiming to be the Son of God, claiming to be the fulfillment of the Messiah, claiming for whatever way that they were the one to fulfill these very promises, they couldn't prove what Matthew demonstrates here the very bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an important introduction that Matthew begins with in his gospel. When he begins his gospel, he begins defending that Jesus Christ is the King of Israel. He is the legal king of Israel. That's what's demonstrated in chapter 1, verse 1 through 17. He has the legal right because of his bloodline. He is the son of God, demonstrated supernaturally from verses 18 to the end of the chapter in verse 25. He is born of God. He is in chapter 2, demonstrated as the son of God who is protected by God, preserved and protected. Chapter three, he is affirmed as the son of God as God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Chapter four, he is tested as the king as he is taken out into the wilderness and te- tested by the devil. And chapters 5 through 7, he has, you hear the message of the king. In chapters 8 through 10, you see the power of the king. In chapters 11 through chapter 12, you see the ministry of the king. In chapter 13 through the end of the book, you see the rejection of the king. That is Matthew's defense of Jesus' kingship from this gospel. Here, Jesus is demonstrated as the one who fulfills what God had promised long ago I just want to point out some of these marvelous details in the moments we have tonight. Because when we come to look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we're not coming to look at just an ordinary man with an ordinary circumstance. We're coming to see the very Son of God, the one who comes in the flesh, who had the royal blood, who comes in the line of David, who can sit on this very throne which gives them the right to rule. And this is what Matthew defends in this marvelous section. He defends the glory and the riches of the Son of God. So even when we sing tonight, is he worthy? The answer is a resounding yes, he is worthy. Because of even just here in the opening verses, the legal right that Jesus had to sit on the throne of David. Notice how Matthew begins in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. It says this The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As he starts, he gives the announcements that this is the record of the genealogy, this is the royal lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He starts from the Messiah, working himself all the way back to Abraham. This marvelous genealogy Matthew begins to unfold here, he begins to unfold to a particular audience, the Jewish audience. Matthew makes his argument to the Jews, and he is defending to the Jews that their Messiah has arrived. The one that they have anticipated, the one they have waited for, the one in which they have been longing for to come deliver them, that Messiah has arrived. And Matthew is defending that or proving that here in this gospel that he's writing. Matthew uniquely, as he writes through this book, defends the significance of Christ from a Jewish perspective. Matthew quotes the Old Testament nearly a hundred times, quoting Old Testament passages demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Matthew here, who had been rejected by his own people as a tax collector, would have been viewed by his own people, the Jews, as a traitor because he was taking money from them to give to Rome. Here, Matthew now finds his true purpose, his true identity, by focusing his attention on the Lord Jesus Christ and as a follower of Christ. Matthew records the life of, and the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ through the legal line, which be, would be through the Father's blood, Father's line. That's why in verse 16 it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Matthew focuses from Joseph's line and works all the way back. Luke, on the other hand, focuses from Mary's line, the bloodline, and goes all the way back to Adam. So that from both Mary's bloodline and Joseph's bloodline, you see that Jesus Christ would have the right to sit on the throne of David. From Mary's bloodline, it would demonstrate Jesus had the the royal blood. From Joseph's bloodline, he would have the legal right to be able to sit on that very throne. Here in verse 1 again, when it says this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Some of your translations may have the anointed one. This is the emphasis of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah, This outcast Jew is now writing to make known to his own people that the one they've anticipated, the one they've wanted to come, has finally arrived. When I think about that, you know, significantly on Christmas, just leading up to the anticipation on Christmas... On Christmas morning, when we're anticipating the morning of getting together and sharing presents and interacting with family and coming together with great joy, there's anticipation that is building up to that whole week. Over the last I know, few weeks for our family, I know, and I'm sure it's true for your family, the, the events that have gone on from the Christmas parties to the gatherings to the cookie decorations to on and on the events, it's all moving in anticipation to a particular event. Well, that is what's happening here with Matthew. As he is unfolding the account here, he is building up and demonstrating the anticipation that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice in this, as he builds this case, and particularly verses 2-17 through that we'll look at, I want to point out three things. I want to point out the importance of Abraham, the importance of David, and then the importance of the Messiah, the moments that we have together. And in this, Matthew is, again, proving the case of the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is the importance of Abraham. Notice again back in verse 1, this is the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, is all leading back to the very source, the root, Abraham. So he starts in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and it continues on from there. He goes all the way back to Abraham. Why Abraham? Why was he the central one by which Matthew goes back to to demonstrate the root? Well, it's because God had made a promise to Abraham. God had made a promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Here is that promise that God had made. The Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God had made a promise to, to Abraham that he was going to bless Abraham that he was going to make Abraham a father of many nations. He goes on and says that later in Genesis, that God is going to bless, or even in verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. He is going to lift Abraham up. He was going to make Abraham have a great name. And through Abraham was going to come a great nation. Abraham was to be God's choice, that he would extend his blessing through. And yet it was difficult for Abraham and his wife Sarai to have a child. They went many years without having children at all. Abraham, again, wasn't a young man when he first received the promise from God. He was about 75 years old when he received that promise from God that he was going to be the father of a great nation. And he went nearly 25 more years of that promise not being fulfilled. He was 99 pushing 100 when the time came where that covenant was fulfilled. In fact, it's in Paul's writing in the book of Romans. Paul draws attention to this about Abraham and Abraham having great faith. And speaking about Abraham's great faith, he said of Abraham, he believed in hope against hope. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, In hope against hope he, this is Abraham, believed so they might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. A promise had been given to Abraham. Abraham had believed God. Abraham kept believing on God. Even as he was getting older, he was the example of faith. That was Paul's argument in the book of Romans. First one to believe, the one who demonstrated that salvation was the same in the Old Testament as the New Testament because the Old Testament saint was saved by faith just as the New Testament saint was saved. In Genesis account, again, the account goes on about Abraham. It says in Genesis 17 and verse one and through three, it says this: "Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, "I am God Almighty. walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly." And Abraham fell on his face. It says, And God was saying to him, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. The Messiah had to come through the line of Abraham because it was through Abraham that God had promised that he was going to bless that he was going to pour out his promises, that he was going to bless the world, he was going to bless the world through Abraham. So this Messiah had to come through Abraham. A model of faith, a model of loyalty to God, a model of dedication, a model who we can look at and we can see his frailties and we can see his weakness, but we can also see his great faith and example. This is as Matthew starts his gospel here in Matthew chapter 1. He starts by pointing our attention to this Abraham, and Matthew begins to build the case that Jesus Christ came through the line of Abraham. Which leads to the second important character, as that is David. Notice, as he says there, that we are through the line of David. Jump down to verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. The second in character is David himself. David was the great king of Israel. David was the the anointed king over Saul. David was the one who, under his rule, the, the nation was blessed and prospered. Bible says of David that David was a man after God's own heart, that his whole heart was dedicated to God, he was loyal to God, loved God deeply. And God had made a promise to David, that he was going to bless David. Second Samuel chapter seven and verse 16 says this, "Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me." And then he says this word: "Forever." Your house, David, your rule will reign forever. Your throne shall be established, and again, forever, 2 Samuel 7, 16. The covenant promise to David was that his throne, his rule, was going to be forever. His family, his house was going to endure. Messiah then had to come through the line of David to fulfill this very promise, that this was going to be an eternal fulfillment. In Isaiah 11 and verse 10, Isaiah prophesying about this is this, Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The one who is to come was going to come through the line of Jesse, through the root of Jesse, and he was going to set up his glorious rule. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Paul, building this case, says this, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Through the Davidic line was going to come the king, and this king was going to rule forever, and this king was going to bring a blessing not only to the family, the line of David, but also to all of the Gentiles. And as Jeremiah 33 and verse 15 says, In those days at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. And he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. The point is then, not only has God promised to bring his blessing through Abraham, but he also promised to bring his blessing through David as well. So the Messiah who came had to come through these lines. And that's exactly what Matthew demonstrates for us in this text as he shows the order, the birth order and rites through these verses in verses 1 through 17. This leads us to the last significant and the greatest important part of this whole genealogy and is that of the Messiah, Proof of the Messiah, that Jesus Christ is again, as Matthew says at the end of, or at the beginning of verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. It's interesting if you were to take this genealogy from verse two through verse sixteen and break it out. It falls into three distinct groups. The first period, from verses two through six, is marked from. Abraham to David, and that is the period of the patriarchs. This is a period of the growth of the nation of Israel. This is a period of prosperity. This is the period in which you have rulers like Moses and Joshua and the judges. This is a period of growing, a a period in time in which they are getting out of slavery and they are heading into deliverance. They are setting covenants before God that you have the rule of law. You have a total of this. As Matthew breaks out, he says there are 14 generations in this time period. Then he moved to the second time period, is that of the monarchy, from verses 7 through 11. And this period of the monarchy is the period of the rules of the king, and you have the rule of Saul, the rule of David, the rule of Solomon and his sons, in the period of the monarchy. And in this time, you have actually the decline of Israel, where they have grown up, prospered, established as a nation, and then in the monarchy, they begin to decline And then you have in verses 12 through 16, a period of silence. This is the period of the deportation and return. And what you have is significant about this period of time. After the destruction of Jerusalem, you have then the silence. We know little about the individuals from verses 12 through 16, little about their life, little about their events. 400 years of darkness, 400 years of silence. These are three distinct periods of time, all of which waiting for and coming towards the Messiah. Now, in the midst of all of this, what I want to draw your attention to is four outcasts. Four outcasts in this whole account. Outcasts, the first is seen in verse 3, and it's a woman by the name of Tamar. Notice verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Who is Tamar? Well, Tamar is the daughter-in-law of Judah. God had taken the lives of her first two husbands, Er, and his, his next brother, Anan, and they had passed away, and they had been, she had been promised the next son by Judah. But Judah didn't give his next son to her, so she was left barren. She didn't have a son to continue the family line, and so she dressed up as a prostitute, having covered her face. And Judah came and had relations with her, and she bore sons. Heres and Zerah. Now notice that whole event, that event where this woman dressed up as a prostitute for incest to take of her father-in-law so that she would bear a child which he was to promise to her through giving her a husband. He, she is included by God's grace in verse 3 as part of the messianic line. Notice down in verse 5, the next expression of grace, another name, Rahab. Verse 5, Solomon was the father of Boaz by, or Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Was Rahab, she was a prostitute. She was one who lived in Jericho. She's the one whom the spies came and dwelled in her house, and she hid the spies. She was the one who there, again, because of her faith in God, God used to protect the spies and be able to set them home freely so they can give back a report. She here, again, as it says there in verse 5, bore a son, or Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and then you have she bore a son, Boaz. And then Boaz, in verse 5, was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Ruth is the third character there demonstrated in this the third unique person. She was a Gentile, like Tamar and like Rahab. She was a Gentile. She was a Moabitess. And again, these are women from outside of the line of Israel that God had brought into the Messianic line, and through them came the royal bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point of all this? It's this. That God was able to demonstrate grace and use the broken circumstances and relationships to demonstrate, again, the riches of His grace. That He would bring the Messiah through this line. One more individual. is brought out in verse 6. It says, David was the father of Solomon, noticed by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. So you had this adulteress whom God brought the royal line through, through Bathsheba, through Ruth, through Rahab, through Tamar. God brought the Lord Jesus Christ through this bloodline, to demonstrate ultimately this great truth, that God is, again, a God to rescue sinners, that God was able to take the broken, to take the distressed, to take the ones who had, again, rebelled, and to transform them, to recognize the riches of His grace, and to lavish it upon them and restore them. He rewarded Rahab's faith as she believed upon God. He rewarded Tamar's faith. He rewarded even Bathsheba. He demonstrated the riches of his work in bringing about the royal line and entering the Messiah into this world. Again, this is unique for us in this case. Because oftentimes within our Lives, we hear something like this where someone will say, my life is too messed up for me to believe upon God. Why would he ever save me? Why would he ever do anything to rescue me because my life is too messed up? He's only there for the good people. He's not there for me. Well, here within the royal line of Christ, the legal line of Christ, are these four individuals who are unworthy themselves? Those who are, again, undeserving. And yet, by the riches of God's grace, He used these weak individuals to be an expression of His outpouring of grace and favor. So well, then in any sense, when one would think I am unworthy or I am undeserving of, the, of God's grace and mercy, the answer is simply you're right. Get in line. Because we're all in that particular case. So Matthew builds this case and demonstrates this. He leads it up to then verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. 14 generations of the patriarchs and the monarchs in the time of after the time of silence restoration. Fourteen in each of those generations. It's likely there were a few more, and Matthew is just picking out some highlights to demonstrate his case. But what he proves in all of this is that what we've been anticipating, what Israel has been waiting for, God had fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that there there is hope now, for Israel and hope for the people of God because Jesus Christ himself has the credentials so that if anyone else is going to rise up and say, I have the right, I am the Messiah, I am the person, we go back, we'll measure the credentials because whoever the Messiah is, he must come fulfilling the promises that God has made. He must come fulfilling the promise that he has made to Abraham. He must come fulfilling the promise that God had made to David. He must come fulfilling all that God had prophesied about. And Jesus Christ has. Matthew demonstrates that here. My hope for us, and again, as we come to the end of this and consider the details and the significance of it, my hope for us is this. But when we are despairing, when we are overwhelmed, when we consider our own unworthiness, the answer is, yes, we are unworthy within ourselves. There's nothing good within us, nothing that we're capable of doing, but God has done it for us. God has accomplished what we need through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's laid down his life on our behalf so he can take away our sins. But he even entered into this world in the line that would ultimately fulfill all of God's promises. So that everything that God required, God has satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you look at your own life and say, my life's messed up and it is unworthy, you say, well, indeed, that so was Tamar's and so was Rahab's. And so was Ruth, Moabitess. So so was also Bathsheba. And yet God demonstrated the riches of His grace and favor in pouring out His promises and fulfilling His promises through their lines, showing them favor and restoration. Because of their faith, He would do the same for us. And when you think about christmas time and you spend time together with your own family your own interacting you are reminded of these very events anticipation you're waiting for something significant you're reminding of credentials of recognizing the importance of family and and the importance of relationships and then you're reminded of grace And We experience grace each and every day, particularly even at Christmas time as we share gifts of love towards one another and we get to pour out grace. All of this, again, is anchored in God's example as we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come back tomorrow morning after a morning of time of joy with our families, we're going to come back and we're going to reflect on this particular idea of the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ and see the fulfillment of this marvelous promise. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we are overwhelmed at the expression of your grace and mercy towards us. Overwhelmed that you would make these promises from many generations And then even as generations came and left, you remained faithful, accomplishing your good purposes, demonstrating that nothing can thwart your will. No man can thwart your will. No government can thwart your will. No amount of time will thwart your purposes. You will accomplish all of your good purposes down to the very detail Not one jot or tittle will pass away without you accomplishing all that you have declared. And we see that even in the fulfillment of the life, birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. When our hearts are despairing, when we are overwhelmed, when we are filled with fears and anxieties, when we are overcome by our own frailties and weaknesses, may we turn to you Casting ourselves upon you, may we confess our need for the Lord Jesus Christ and seek your grace and favor. For we know all who turn to you, you will not cast away until you will receive all who call upon you. And so we rejoice in this season, reflecting on that marvelous grace that you have given to us, that gives us hope and meaning and purpose to endure through the difficulties of life. And when we are overwhelmed and uncertain, may we again anchor our faith in these historical certainties. These aren't just names in, in a fairy tale. These aren't stories made up. These are historical people who lived in actual time, who walked by faith, who were rescued by the grace of God just as we are. And we anticipate that day when our faith will become sight. So strengthen us, even this season, and may you fill the hearts of your people with the overwhelming sense of your grace and favor, so that their hearts would be filled with joy and love. And for any who do not know you, Father, we would pray that this would be a time in which they would come to a clear understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and confess with their mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in their heart that you have raised Him from the dead. It's in your blessed name we pray, amen.